thanks everybody again for joining us today. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the day's conversations, uh, we see this event, the annual Gray Lecture, as an opportunity to take a step back from all the sort of specific projects and, and initiatives of the Gray Center and, and take a look at the big picture. Now, I don't want to sell the specific projects short. If you're not already on our mailing list or checking out our website, please do. The Gray Center was founded less than a decade ago by then-Professor Naomi Rao. It started with a series of, of research roundtables for scholars. Um, and, and on that foundation, we built a number of programs now, especially with the arrival of co-director Jen Mascott. Uh, Professor Mascott has started everything from our, our separation of powers clinic to our, our Congress-facing project, the Article I initiative, uh, and much more. So the Gray Center does a lot of things, and if you're not already familiar with them, I, I hope you will become familiar with them. Uh, and in all of those things, one of our dearest advisors, most helpful advisors, has been uh, the aforementioned Ron Cass. Ron has been part of the Gray Center from the beginning, and we're very lucky for that. Uh, he's advised us on basically every aspect of what we're doing, and it's always good advice, and it's made the Gray Center uh, much better than it would have been in his absence. Uh, a lot of thank you. So when it came time to, to plan this year's lecture, uh, and, and Secretary Scalia kindly agreed to give the lecture, we thought there could be nobody better to introduce Secretary Scalia than Ron, based both on uh, his, his role at the center, uh, but also his longstanding friendship with the late Justice Scalia and the Scalia family. So uh, now I've introduced the introducer. Ron, would you please introduce uh, Gene Scalia? Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm delighted to introduce uh, Eugene Scalia, and uh, I will start, as, as frequently happens, with him, with uh, the Juliet reference, what's in the name? Uh, obviously, uh, he was named after Eugene, Oregon, uh, despite the fact that Eugene is also his grandfather's middle name. Uh, but I thought I would talk a little bit about uh, Oregon and its importance to the, the family. Um, I, I thought about a second for that. Um, I, I do want to talk uh, uh, just a, a, a moment about Gene being uh, both blessed and burdened uh, with a, a family that is a, a famous family. Uh, he has uh, obviously a last name everyone recognizes, well, almost everyone. Uh, we were on an airplane once uh, together, his, his uh, father and mother and I, and. Uh, the uh, steward on the airplane came over to his father and said, Mr. Scalia, uh, what would you like for your main course? Um, and Gene's uh, uh, father said, uh, the name is actually Scalia. And the steward said, you mean like the Supreme Court Justice? And he said, exactly. <laughs> No recognition. Uh, Gene has uh, uh, not only a parent who is smart and thoughtful and kind, uh, but also a famous father uh, for whom the Scalia Law School uh, is named and for whom this lecture is named, uh, who also uh, has those characteristics, had those characteristics, and is a, a great friend of everyone who believes in the rule of law. Uh, Gene who is uh, both extraordinarily uh, accomplished uh, in his own right, 
has borne up well uh, with the family name. Uh, Jean uh, went to the University of Virginia uh, and to the University of Chicago Law School. He uh, also went to the uh, University of Chicago Lab School, which he assures me has not been renamed the Wuhan Lab School. Um, he uh, has uh, both uh, practiced law. Uh, he served as an assistant to uh, Bill Bennett and as assistant to Bill Barr when he was in his big bills phase as opposed to what we asked Congress to do, which is small bills only. Uh, he served as the Solicitor of Labor and as the 28th Secretary of the Department of Labor. Uh, he has done two stints at the Gibson Dunn Law Firm. He is truly a person uh, who cannot hold a job. But, uh, but he has, in every job, excelled. He is thoughtful about the law, and we are delighted to have him as this year's speaker. Please welcome Eugene Scalia. Thank you, Ron. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you for your friendship to my family, to my father, and, and your continuing friendship to my mother. It, that means a lot to the Scalia family. Uh, with respect to the name, uh, yes, uh, often uh, pronounced Scalia, less so these days. But I used to tell my dad when people would ask me, uh, when they would call me uh, Scalia, I would say, no, no, I'm Scalia. I, I, would, I would tell my father, I, I would tell them, the justice is Scalia. Um, he liked that. Well, it's an honor to deliver the second annual uh, Gray Lecture. Uh, Boyden Gray has had an outsized influence on the understanding and the practice of administrative law as a government official in private practice, and now as a benefactor and guiding inspiration to the Gray Center for the study of the administrative state at the Scalia Law School. And for those who missed it, outsized influence is high praise for a man who's six foot six. Boyden is someone I've admired since returning to Washington to practice law 30 years ago. He doesn't know it, but he has also brought some small measure of consolation to some of my darkest days, days that fell on Tuesdays in November, as in November 3rd, 1992, November 5, 1996, November 4, 2008, this list goes on. On those days, I've been gladdened by the wisdom that Boyden shared with me years ago. I think it might have been after the 1992 election when he and I were both contemplating uh, returning to private practice and the very different policies that the new administration might uh, pursue. And he said, Gene, God bless the man who regulates my client. And I knew it was wrong, but it lifted my spirits. Um, and so it's an honor to give a lecture dedicated to a jurist who's been such an important figure in the nation's capital all my adult life. And of course, it's a privilege to speak at this event hosted at the Scalia Law School. The law school adopted my uh, father's name not long after he died. And as some of you know, it was a rocky start. For a few days, the school was the Antonin Scalia School of Law, which yielded the acronym A-S-S-O-L. <laughs> this prompted some very disrespectful jokes about the deceased. So it was changed to Antonin Scalia Law School, uh, an institution that is increasingly important 
to the legal community in Washington and the nation at large, and to my family. We Scalia's are proud to be associated with this law school. Well, much of my talk today will focus on administrative law, but I should begin by relating the single greatest revelation I had about the administrative state while serving as labor secretary. The cabinet secretary has many roles, uh, interacting with Congress, the White House, other cabinet officers and agencies, with governors about programs in their states, representing the administration in speeches on television, other public appearances, and of course, supervising the department, which included budgeting, and at the Labor Department, overseed, uh, uh, included overseeing grant making, regulation, uh, rulemaking, and enforcement. I had experience with many of these activities in a prior job at the department, but grant making was new to me. And over time, I came to realize that the days on the job, my best days of the job, the days that I enjoyed most, and where I felt best about what I was doing was the days that I announced grants. The lion's share of the department's budget goes to worker training, often in compelling circumstances, for young people entering apprenticeships, or people overcoming substance abuse, or exiting the criminal justice system. And of course, it's an age-old rule of good government that you don't disperse money without taking credit for it. And so when the department announced significant grants, I often traveled to a small or medium-sized city to meet with the group receiving the grant. We were joined by local civic and business leaders who often had been working closely with the grant recipient for years. And because a cabinet secretary was coming to town, the local media would be there too. And at these events, I was with well-meaning people engaged in well-intentioned work, and I was addressing something important, and I was treated very, very well. The grant recipients were appreciative, plus they might have had a grant application pending for the coming fiscal year. I came away from these events with two thoughts. First, and I'm a limited government kind of guy, first I thought, that felt so good, I want to do it again. And second, I realized this is dangerous. That warm feeling I was experiencing uh, is felt by nearly every cabinet secretary, senator, congressman who's handing out money. And undoubtedly, it's one reason our government is so large. Well, on becoming secretary, I was immediately and acutely aware that in various circumstances, courts had a duty to defer to my interpretations of ambiguous statutes and regulations. That felt very good, too. After nearly 30 years as a litigator, judges had, had to finally defer to me. One of my father's most criticized decisions was the Our case, where he wrote an opinion for the court giving deference to an interpretation put forward in an amicus brief filed by the Secretary of Labor. My father later regretted Our, but when I became secretary three, three years after he died, I looked on Auer as his own prescient vote of confidence and best wishes for my tenure. Well, I've always been ambivalent about the Supreme Court's deference jurisprudence, and as secretary, that ambivalence continued. On the one hand, I had good reasons to like deference as secretary. It strengthened our hands and our ability to achieve the administration's goals. I also saw 
a valuable role it could play in bringing national uniformity to confused areas of the law. I adopted two rules partly for that reason. A rule distinguishing independent contractors from employees for purposes of the wage and hour laws, and a rule setting forth when, under those same laws, two companies were the so-called joint employer of a worker so that each was responsible for ensuring the minimum wage and overtime were paid. Who's an independent contractor and when a company is a joint employer are important questions under the Fair Labor Standards Act, but the Supreme Court hasn't addressed those subjects for decades in decisions that today arguably raise as many questions as they answer. As a consequence, companies with nationwide operations find themselves contending with appellate case law that varies by circuit, and with opinion letters and other guidance documents from the Labor Department that themselves are sometimes unclear or in conflict. I adopted rules on both these subjects to bring clarity and consistency to the law and to approach those subjects in a way that I thought reflected the right view of law and policy. Well, there's a coda to both those rules that reflects a problem that has developed under Chevron. It's a problem that I suspect has contributed, contributed to the Supreme Court's increasingly negative view of deference doctrines. After I left office, my successor immediately set about undoing both of those rules. In the case of independent contractors, proposing a new rule with a diametrically opposed approach. And so while I looked to those rulemakings to promote clarity and consistency, the aftermath shows how courts' deference to agency interpretations can actually have a destabilizing effect. Today, presidents unable to enact their agendas through legislation look to administrative agencies to get the job done, and deference doctrines help them along. Over time, each new administration learns from its predecessors, and each becomes swifter and more adept at identifying the legal positions it wants and issuing rules and decisions to implement them. One of the principal rationales given for deference doctrines is agency expertise, but over the years, it's become crystal clear to the justices that it's not expertise that's driving agencies flip-flopping interpretations of the law. So as secretary, as I said, I certainly saw advantages to deference, but it also dawned on me that it was peculiar my interpretations were receiving deference because for the first time since becoming a lawyer, I actually wasn't doing much interpreting. Other people were doing the interpreting, and I was making policy decisions without much attention to statutory language at all. Quite often, I realized my job was to pick and choose, in a thoughtful way, but to pick and choose among a menu of options served up, served up by staff. What the law said was one factor in determining that menu. But I tended not to give that factor much thought because it was the responsibility of the department's solicitor's office to verify that the options I was given were legally viable. Part of effective management, I believe, is insisting that others do their jobs well and then showing some deference to their exercise of that responsibility so long as consideration of the matter doesn't raise doubts in your mind. So certainly there were times as secretary that I posed legal questions more than most labor secretaries, I am sure. 
But you can't be a good labor secretary if you're also trying to be the labor solicitor. I had already had that job. Someone else had it now. And I wanted her to perform it, to do it well, and to enjoy it. And she did. Plus, to be honest, I didn't really want to do interpreting. I'd been a lawyer for nearly 30 years. Finally, I was the client. It was my turn to make others do the hard work, reject their advice, and blame them when things went wrong. <laughs> so, does it tell us anything about Chevron deference and other deference doctrines that the officials whose interpretations receive deference seldom actually interpret? At minimum, seen this way, Chevron deference is a misnomer. You don't ordinarily speak of deferring to someone's performance of something they didn't even do. In reality, the object of the deference is a policy choice, often dressed up with a legal explanation by agency lawyers after the fact. Also, deference canons require that for an interpretation to be authoritative, it come from an official with a certain level of stature, the secretary or an agency head. But the people doing the interpreting are typically officials at a lower level to which deference supposedly is not given. And the problem runs deeper. So far, the process I've described might suggest that the decider, the agency head, and the lawyers are all rowing together so that the interpretation the lawyers scribble down after the decision meeting reflects the view they held of the law at the time they came and presented the options to the decider. But that's not always the case. So let me add the following to the process that I've been describing, with the important caveat that it does not describe my process. For my part, I did read statutes, I edited draft rules, I read rulemaking comments to make sure I saw different sides of an issue and saw where my staff and I might be wrong, and I never took a position that I thought was wrong legally. But all that said, many agency heads not only don't interpret at times, they're actually indifferent to or even contemptuous of the right legal answer. As I've said, agency heads make policy choices and many factors influence those choices. The president's goals, of course, are a major factor. So may be the strongly held views of a certain committee chair with responsibility over department's budget and media attention for some, or the agency head's perception of how his action will be portrayed by the media and the implications for his career down the road. For some in government, factors such as these will sometimes supersede legal considerations. A rule will get adopted against the advice of the lawyers, the interpreters. The decider might say the following to the lawyers. I hear you about the legal risk, but I'm gonna do what I think's right. I may never get sued, and if I do, I may win. After all, you just admitted to me that you couldn't say you were 100% sure the courts rule against us. Worst case, I lose, but you know what? That's on the courts. Everybody will know I did the right thing. Indulge me as I say again, uh, this was not my decision-making approach, but believe me, it happens. And this punctuates the peculiarity to Chevron deference that I've been describing. Here you have a court deferring to an interpretation that the agency interpreters thought was wrong and which prevailed because the decider was contemptuous of the statute's true meaning. 
Do we really want courts deferring in those circumstances? Yet the, these things happen and court cannot know if it has happened in the case at hand. While as I say, I remain ambivalent about deference doctrines, the small role that interpretation played in my decision making as a secretary puts for me some appreciable weight on the Chevron, on the anti-Chevron side of the scales. Well, in speaking about rules I adopted while secretary, I should mention the one that was vetoed by the president 10 days ago. On the surface, you wouldn't think that this rule would arouse such passion. It was issued, issued under ERISA, and it was titled Financial Factors in Selecting Plan Investments. It had a simple message. Under ERISA, retirement plan, plan fiduciaries must manage plan assets for the exclusive purpose of maximizing returns to provide for the retirement of the plan's participants. There are trillions of dollars in ERISA plans. That money is not there to be harnessed to pursue other goals, however worthy they may be. To my knowledge, this rule was the first federal or state rule uh, on so-called ESG investing, although we ended up not, not using that term at all in the rule. In proposing and adopting the rule, we were clear that there were times when environmental considerations or considerations of the governance of a corporation, that's the G in ESG, there were times when those considerations were appropriate or even required under ERISA. You don't invest in a company with a huge Superfund liability without taking that into account. My concern, though, was the growing interest some people had in using the resources and influences of the financial system to push policy goals, like addressing climate change. I didn't want ERISA fiduciaries diverted in that way. As I said at the time, ERISA plans further a single, incredibly important social policy, retirement security for American workers. That shouldn't be compromised. Well, when the current administration came to office, it quickly put what was essentially a stay on my rule, and last year uh, replaced it with a new rule that's intended to be more favorable to ESG investing. The House and Senate voted to repeal that new rule earlier this month using the Congressional Review Act, and President Biden voted, vetoed that legislation, so the new rule remains in place. The debate over these two rules has been distorted. The rule I adopted did not bar consideration of environmental and governance considerations when relevant to the economic value of an investment. And the replacement rule, while it's meant to promote ESG investing, was limited in how much it could depart from my rule because my rule tracked the statute. I take no position on the legality of the new rule, but in the course of its rulemaking, the administration realized that ERISA required it to dial back the rule it had initially proposed. So there's been a good deal of regular, regulatory activity in this area since uh, my department proposed our rule less than three years ago. This includes a controversial proposal by the Securities Exchange Commission to mandate costly climate disclosures, as well as new laws in a number of states to restrict activities in those states by financial institutions that are perceived as boycotting certain industries, like oil and gas or firearms manufacture. These state laws reflect that in the last couple years, people right, have, right of center have recognized that they too 
have levers they can pull in the financial system. Some might say progressives are getting a taste of their own medicine, and they deserve it. I see that point. But my original worry was the distortion of our financial system by those using it to pursue policy goals and the collateral impact on people like retirees who depend on the integrity of the financial system. The ultimate goal must be to stop this distortion, not to counterbalance it. Well, in speaking about uh, rulemaking a moment ago, I described my enthusiasm as secretary for deference doctrines. And I want to reassure you, people like Ron, uh, by saying that I was also an enthusiast for sub-regulatory guidance. In fact, one of my proudest moments as secretary was to act through guidance rather than through notice and comment rulemaking. I'm referring to the large volume of guidance that uh, OSHA issued regarding how to address COVID in the workplace. Ultimately, we issued dozens of guidance documents, including guidance for industry generally and guidance for specific industries like retail or uh, meat packing, manufacturing, etc. All of this was done without notice and comment. Why, you ask, did we use guidance rather than rulemaking? First, because while agencies' use of guidance is often reviled, I know from my time in private practice that the regulated want guidance from the government. They want to know the government's expectations so they know how to avoid getting crosswise. Because knowing the government, government's views helps them at times order their affairs. And because the government, at its best, can be a useful repository of best practices. The second reason I favored guidance may sit, sit a little better with the skeptics in this audience. Guidance made sense to me in that circumstance because I wasn't 100% sure the Centers for Disease Control knew all the answers about COVID-19. Guidance is flexible, easily issued, easily corrected or withdrawn. Labor unions, Democratic members of Congress, some in the media, and others tried to pressure me to issue a rule about COVID, a so-called emergency temporary standard. But I believed that our rulemaking would divert our time and energies, as well as employers, workers, and unions. And I believe that given how fluid and incomplete our understanding was of COVID-19, any, any rule we issued that had specific meaningful standard, standards would likely become outdated within weeks. Well, after I left office, I had a rare privilege that we should all get to enjoy occasionally. I got to see someone else face the same choice I did, make the opposite decision, and fail spectacularly. For the first part of 2021, the Biden administration followed the policies we had put in place. But as you know, in September of that year, the president announced that OSHA would adopt an emergency temporary standard requiring companies to require employees to get vaccinated. As I had expected, Preparing that rule was time consuming. There was an immediate widespread litigation that further occupied the time and resources of the department. And even as those cases made their way to the Supreme Court, evidence was emerging that existing vaccines were becoming less effective against new variants. As you know, the Supreme Court rejected OSHA's COVID rule in a 6-3 decision that was the Supreme Court's last decision to apply the major questions doctrine without naming it. Well, those had been a bad few months for the department, 
and it ended with OSHA effectively having less authority than before it adopted the rule. I had believed, and still do, that OSHA had an important role in addressing COVID in the workplace. But the thrust of the court's decision was that in most workplaces, COVID was not an occupational hazard that OSHA had authority to regulate. Excessive assertion of agency authority had resulted in less of it. Other agencies today that are contemplating pushing the envelope should take note. Well, as this reflects, I'm a believer in agency guidance in some circumstances, used properly. But the abuse of agency guidance is arguably the most important overlooked problem in administrative law. Right now, the Supreme Court and lower courts are thoughtfully re-examining many aspects of the relationship among administrative agencies, the regulated, and the courts. The reviewability of agency guidance belongs on that list. And I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about it. The guidance that my department issued on COVID-19 was truly meant to inform and guide. We did not intend to bind or coerce, in part because we did not intend it to, as final. We knew that our recommendations might change within weeks. Whether a document an agency issues is truly guidance, or whether instead it's a so-called legislative rule, and whether that document is reviewable in court are notoriously slippery legal questions. The questions are seen as related. True agency guidance is a general statement of policy that is said to be non-binding, non-final, and non-reviewable. On the other hand, if it's binding, it's typically final and reviewable. In the real world, these distinctions courts use sometimes have little meaning. On occasions, sometimes supposedly non-binding, non-final agency actions can be de as determinative of the conduct of regulated entities as expressly binding substantive requirements are. In fact, in some contexts, supposedly informal agency statements can be more determinative of private conduct, more coercive than substantive rules. The substantive rules can be challenged in court, but the more coercive at times, and at times more costly, supposed guidance typically cannot. Four years ago, a professor at Yale Law School, Nicholas Perillo, published a thoughtful article that he presented as an empirical study of guidance. It was based on scores of interviews with regulators and with lawyers and regulated entities that appear before the regulators in an effort to understand why agencies use guidance and why guidance sometimes functions as if it's a binding rule. Perillo sees the results of his interviews as a partial rebuttal to the belief that agencies intentionally use guidance as a backdoor way to regulate without the rigors of rulemaking, which includes allowing notice and comment, and as I've said, being subject to judicial review. Perlow says this skeptical view of guidance is preoccupied with, quote, accusation and blame. And the foremost scholar associated with the view was a professor at this law school, Robert Anthony. Anthony joined the faculty in 1983, four years after the law school was founded. Just prior to that, he had actually succeeded my father as the chair of the Administrative Conference of the United States. 
as a young associate working on my first challenge to supposed agency guidance, I took inspiration from Anthony's work, including an article with the title, Well, you want the permit, don't you? Like its title, the article wonderfully captured some of the incredibly effective regulatory pressures agencies can employ. The Gray Center is new, but it carries forward a proud tradition that dates to this law school's earliest days. But let me return to the Perillo article. Perillo does not deny that guidance sometimes is used as backdoor regulation. His point is that it often is used for other reasons, and to the extent it, effect, it, it is effectively binding, that often is the result of not of regulators' intent, but of unavoidable aspects of the relationship between the regulated, I'm sorry, between the regulator and the regulatee. His first example is the same that Robert, Robert Anthony used, permitting. When a statute requires entities to, quote, seek the affirmative assent of the agency in order to attain some benefit, he writes, quote, and if the agency's decision is uncertain and subject to delay, the incentive to follow whatever the agency wishes appears to be overwhelming. In these and other circumstances that he identifies, Perillo says that, quote, regulated parties often have no practical choice but to follow a guidance document. So uh, in my remarks, I want to address something that Perillo's article does not, which is the implications of those observations for judicial review. As I said, whether an agency document is reviewable as final agency action is often determined in substantial part by assessing whether it purports to be binding. But Perillo, while he distances himself from Robert Anthony's skeptical view of guidance, confirms the concern that regulated entities sometimes feel they have no practical choice but to follow the overwhelming pressure to adhere to guidance. And yet, a legal challenge to those documents would be thrown out in many courts today on the ground that it's non-final agency action. Well, here's where I admit I have a bee in my bonnet about this issue, partly because of a case I once handled against the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. At the heart of the case was a supposed guidance document the CFTC issued regarding international swaps trading. The document concerned the so-called cross-border application of the Commission's swaps rules. The cross-border guidance was adopted through notice and comment, but it omitted the cost-benefit analysis required for substantive CFTC rules. This supposed guidance took up 78 pages in the Federal Register. At the time it published the document, the Commission actually issued an exemptive order that gave parties, quote, transitional relief while they came into compliance with the new regime established by the supposed guidance. The chair of the agency told regulated entities that the best thing for them to do was to, quote, come into compliance with the guidance. The regulated entities were large banks, and I can assure you there was no way on earth they were going to deviate from the guidance if the court upheld it. You may be wondering, how did I manage to lose this case? I did not. I won on other grounds. But the court did find that this monstrosity was non-reviewable agency guidance. It did so by asking, initially, if the document had, quote, actual legal effect, quote, 
and by inquiring into the agency's own characterization of the document and whether it genuinely left the agency and its decision makers free to exercise discretion. And quote, as some of you know, if the agency says, well, you know, we reserve the right to arbitrarily deviate from what we're saying here, then courts say, oh, that's none of our business then. The court also uh, found that the document was not finally determinative of the issues or rights it addressed. For reasons I'll spare you, I believe the court's conclusion was wrong, but it was not aberrational. The considerations I've just mentioned are commonly used by courts to deny review of supposed guidance documents. It's established law that to be subject to review under the APA, an agency document must be final agency action. And the most commonly cited Supreme Court decision on final agency action is the 1997 case Bennett v. Speer, where the court identified two necessary conditions. First, the agency's action must be the culmination of its decision-making process. It cannot be, quote, tentative or interlocutory. In other words, it has to be final to be final agency action. But second, the action must be one by which, quote, rights or obligations have been determined or, quote, from which legal consequences will flow. You might ask, if the first part of this test asks whether agency action is final, isn't that the question? What's the second part of the test doing? It's a fair point. In the most recent Supreme Court decision, decision to closely examine final agency action, it's the Hawks case, the court dropped a footnote saying that because the challenger met both parts of the test I've just described, the justices, quote, need not consider the challenger's argument that an agency action that satisfies only the first part of the test may also constitute final agency action. Obviously, this is an argument to be preserved in future cases, and lower courts should take note. Elsewhere in this opinion, uh, Chief Justice Roberts described the second part of the Bennett test more capaciously than courts often do. As I said, prong two asks if, quote, rights or obligations have been determined or legal consequences flow. But the Chief Justice made clear that the door is open to a broader range of considerations. He described what he called a pragmatic approach, citing a 1956 decision where the agency documented issue, quote, had no authority except to give notice of how the agency interpreted the relevant statute. That order did, though, quote, warn every carrier that they would be taking certain actions, quote, at the risk of incurring criminal penalties. On that basis, that agency document was judged reviewable agency action. It was not necessary that the document be formally binding or that it actually change parties' legal rights itself. This more receptive approach to reviewing agency action is needed. One of the dilemmas regulated entities, including my clients, face most often is they feel boxed in, coerced by positions the government takes without an avenue for redress because the government can claim in essence it has merely warned and therefore its position cannot be reviewed in court. That's not right. Entities that have no practical choice but to adhere to agency guidance ought to have the ability to challenge that guidance in court. 
Otherwise, agencies can bypass rulemaking and impose unreasonable, inefficient, and even unlawful mandates while evading review. People and judges who are concerned about abuses by the administrative state should pay close attention to the reviewability of such agency guidance in court. Well, apart from that lengthy digression, uh, my remarks this afternoon have uh, centered on my time heading the Labor Department. Uh, I wanted to focus those recollections on the subject of this forum, which is the administrative state and administrative law. But it would be a disservice to the department and its mission to the Labor Department staff and to my memories of my time there to leave you with the impression that these intellectual concepts were my main preoccupation or the lens through which I principally viewed what I was doing. We had work to do, administering programs with potentially huge effects on workers and employers. Our principal daily focus was to learn of ways that we as a department could do our jobs better and to then make that happen. When COVID hit, it gave us a whole new set of priorities. OSHA, as I've mentioned, but also in the unemployment insurance area, which was extremely challenging, in implementing the first ever federal paid leave program, and in trying to understand and address the impact COVID was having on the job markets. I'm proud of that work and forever grateful to those who were there with me, the career staff and political appointees. What I'll remember the most, though, is my travels away from the department. I joked about them earlier, uh, I will say more seriously. During what were some crazy times in this city and in other cities, I was reintrodu reintroduced on every one of those trips to the common sense, the industry, and the optimism that made this country what it is. It was invigorating. And it was a reminder that our country's greatness lies outside of Washington. Our first job here is to manage the government in a way that enables those outside Washington to lead and to thrive. Well, thank you again for the opportunity to speak here. And Adam, I think we have time for questions. We do have time for a couple of questions. If you'd like to ask, again, raise your hand and the microphone will find you. Oh, sure, I got it. Okay. You're not going to ask you. me how you tell good guidance from bad guidance, are you? <laughs> thank you, Mr. Scalia, for being here. I have a, a more practical question for you. Uh, I've heard it described that trying to get a, a federal agency on board with your goals or the administration goals is like trying to drive an oil tanker. You cannot make any sudden movements. I'd be curious to know if that's a, a fair characterization. And then my second question more accurately is, uh, if you could make, like make, every single uh, employee of an agency that you're being asked to lead or a federal department you're being asked to lead to read one book or have one experience or listen to one podcast, what is that one formative thing that you would try to inculcate in everyone through one, one assignment, one homework assignment you could give the whole crew on that oil tanker that would move it in the right direction, you would say, just an inch? Well, that would be Scalia Speaks. <laughs> Volume of my dad's writings. Or the US Constitution. Um, it, it's not easy to uh, turn an agency in the direction that uh, the senior most political leadership would, would like it to turn. 
Uh, but I believe that it, it can be done. I think it's essential uh, in doing that to uh, enlist the career folks there uh, and, and have them help you as, as much as you can and they can. Uh, I think it's a serious mistake, actually, to come in uh, to an agency, parachute in a few political appointees, and think that the 10 of you or the 20 of you are going to be able to achieve the work that you want to achieve in the course of your time there. I think that's a common mistake. I think there are actually uh, some agencies now in Washington that are having difficulty achieving some of what their leadership wants to do because the leadership is trying to bring it all internally and cutting out people who've got the expertise uh, and, and, um, and the experience to uh, produce the work. So my view has always been, uh, I'm gonna get a lot more done uh, enlisting, working with the career folks who've been there, who've got the expertise, who just need to be involved than I will by uh, just trying to uh, do it with a small political team, which I think is a mistake some people make. So that's my answer to that. I, I think it's doable. I think, though, that there also has to be some uh, resolve in management that's applied. There are tools that are available to government political appointees and leaders to uh, manage the personnel of the department to uh, help incentivize them to, to work with you. Uh, they're just also basic ways to you know, approach morale, boost morale and the like to um, incentivize and inspire people to work with you. I don't know if I succeeded, but you know, those, those, those were my aims. I was also, I should say, blessed to have a deputy secretary, Pat Pizzella, who's an extremely experienced government manager and understood uh, how to operate within the civil service system to achieve what we were trying to achieve. Question there. It's often said that guidance is not law, but if you, uh, in a lot of agencies with enforcement power, if you um, don't follow the guidance, the enforcement <coughs> actions follow pretty quickly. Um, if the agency admits that either a penalty will be sought higher if you didn't follow the guidance or that the guidance um, does bring uh, more likely enforcement, uh, actions, shouldn't that be enough to be uh, a real harm that the courts should then say, yeah, we can take it even if it's not final? Oh, sure. If the agency admits that uh, transgressing its guidance document uh, is a violation of law and, for example, if it actually tries to prove up a violation uh, by introducing its guidance as if it were the law, then it's, you know, it's dead in the water on the question of whether or not uh, that's a document that should have gone through notice and comment. But agencies are you know, quite experienced in finding ways to uh, uh, include language saying, don't worry, this is just guidance. It's not binding. We may, we may change our mind so it doesn't bind us and it doesn't bind you. And, uh, and I think that the challenge is to identify those circumstances where those things are being said. But whether it's a matter of agency practice over the years or hardwired industry understanding of what they realistically can do. I think the challenge is to uh, discern when, even despite all those disclaimers, it really is for all purposes uh, functioning uh, as law. And, and so this, this Hawks decision that I mentioned uh, is one I like uh, and I want to give more attention because the court wasn't saying, well, did this document establish the legal standard against which we, you will be prosecuted? It instead said, wow, looks like this is a heavy duty warning and if you don't 
comply, you could face criminal penalties, and you're probably going to decide not to take that risk. It's reviewable. Oh, we have, okay, thank you very much. Uh, just before we go, um, just want to say uh, three more thank yous in addition to thanking one more time our, our speaker, uh, Secretary Scalia. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, uh, the Grace Center team, which makes not just uh, this event possible, but all our events possible, and not just sort of the, the in-house team, but folks like uh, Stephen Engel and Trent McCotter who help lead uh, Grace Center programs. Grateful for everything you do. And of course, our co-director, Jen Mascott. Uh, second, I want to thank uh, everybody who makes our work possible, the, the foundations and others who have supported the Grace Center's work. Um, and first and foremost, of course, on, on this occasion, Ambassador Gray, who of course we don't normally name the center after, but this particular lecture series in particular. Uh, Boyden is a singular figure in Washington, uh, not just because he's, he's so tall, uh, but because he's a singular mixture of, of government experience, really statesmanship, and he's committed to ideas, he's a real scholar, and he just loves America, and we're very, very grateful to get to do what we do in his name. So please join me in thanking him and, and all of our supporters. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center.